let's uh, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, if you can, please kneel with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we come again before you on bended knee. We praise you for, for your love. We praise you for your patience and your kindness and compassion towards all of us. And for loving us so much, even when we were your enemies, you sent your Son uh, to a world that hated him uh, to save them, to save us from ourselves. And we so appreciate uh, that love and that kindness. Uh, Lord, we, we thank You so much for the opportunity to come here uh, on a Sabbath, holy Sabbath day and rest from our labor and uh, to gain uh, a spiritual rest in Jesus and an encouragement and a blessing that You promised to all uh, who worship You in spirit and truth on this most holy day. And Father, we pray, we humbly pray, Lord, that You will forgive each of us our sins. We pray for grace and strength to endure and overcome. May we keep our eyes lifted up to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Father, You've heard the petitions here, these prayer requests. Uh, Brother Ted has graduated and he's gone into his uh, externship program and he's got uh, his certification uh, tests and stuff coming up. We pray that You uh, continue to uh, give him knowledge and wisdom. May he be a testimony to those around him of the truth. Uh, and uh, the truth about health, and uh, prepare people uh, for your soon coming. Uh, Susan's brother is uh, Lord. Oh, he's in a he's in a bad a bad place, Lord. And we pray that you be very near to him, and if if at all possible, draw him to to your throne of grace, and be with her mother and and and. Uh, uh, Help her as she nurses him. May they come to see Jesus in some way. Um, Lord, we don't wish any to be lost, and we know that you don't either. We lift up all the missionaries around the world, and in particular the youth from Wildwood. We pray that you will continue to send angels to surround them and, and not only keep them safe, but help them to be a powerful witness to those that they are, uh, that they are mis- uh, ministering to. And that they will have travel mercies wherever they go. And that they will be brought home safely. Um, We've heard, Lord, of this nine-year-old named Connor who's trying to end his life. We know that demons are to play here. And we pray that you will withhold these demons uh, from this young person. Uh, Lord, that uh, he may experience grace and truth and be in the kingdom. We lift up Jerry's children that they may also come to know you, the true God. Um, Be with Kelly as she finishes her schooling. Uh, Jeanette's friend, Linda Brown. Such sad sorrow. Lord, we we just know of so little, but you know of every case in the world. And we pray that you be very near to each case. We know and trust that you are. But we pray, Lord, that you be very near to Linda, that she will come to know you, give herself to you before she rests. And pray, and we pray, Lord, for our group here, that we may continue to grow in grace and in, in numbers as we evangelize and reach out uh, in our mission fields, at home, in our neighborhoods, 
and uh, in this city and in Holland and in southern Michigan. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless to your honor and glory. And Lord, give me the words to speak today. They're very sober and serious words. May our hearts be uh, softened to hear the truth and to be honest with ourselves and, uh, and with you. We thank you so much for Jesus, His life of righteousness as our example, His death at Calvary for our sins, His resurrection for our victory, and His ministry in heaven for our glorification. We pray, Lord, that we may hasten His return so sin can be ended. We pray in His blessed name. Amen. Well, beloved, I do have a rather serious, excuse me, a rather, I don't want to say serious necessarily, but a sober um, message in some respects. We are in the judgment time. And that warrants, I believe, some very serious consideration. Doesn't it? I mean, I, I want my record to bear the righteousness of Jesus and not my own sins. And I wish the same for all of you. Beloved, we must awaken, I think, sometimes. We're asleep. And we must awaken and be sober about the condition of our life in respect to the eternal God. We each have only so much time and opportunities to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we see this with others, don't we? we when we witness to others, we, we get an indication, a discernment. We see this with others. We also need to see it with ourselves. We only have so much time and opportunities becoming, to become a member of the family of God. And what are we doing with our time and our opportunities? Are we gaining precious godly character traits as we walk with the Lord? Or are we grieving the heart of God and refusing the Holy Spirit by doing our own things each day? Very serious things to think about, aren't they? You know, the Comforter that Jesus promised to send, He will not condone sin in our life. And each time we commit sin, we grieve him. And if we continue to sin, He will be forced completely out of our life. Not because He wants to go. Each person has opportunities. Sometimes few to be reconciled to the Lord. And sometimes I wonder why such chances are squandered when the evidence of God's love, the evidence of God's forgiveness and power to change the life is really overwhelming. It's really overwhelming. As Paul says, you can see the power of God and His love just in nature. It's overwhelming. I want to take, for example, the opportunity to know and accept Jesus Christ that was given to Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice. You know about that? While Paul was in prison there in Caesarea awaiting transport to Rome, 
Festus gives him the opportunity to speak openly to King Agrippa and Bernice in assembly. He brings them in. He makes a big show of it, of course. He he brings this apostle, this man of God in, bound in chains. But it's an opportunity that Paul has to reach someone. Knowing that Agrippa is a Jew, King Agrippa is a Jew, Paul gives his conversion testimony. And he lays out scriptures, in particular the prophecies, showing that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Those listening in that assembly were spellbound to Paul's words because it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through this holy man of God. He was bound in chains that human eyes see, but he was free in the Lord. And he had their attention. And Agrippa, King Agrippa, he was in deep thought as he contemplated the the testimony of Paul and, and Scripture. He was seeing the puzzle pieces put together. Have you ever been talking to someone and it looks like the light bulb is starting to go off? You're sharing the truth uh, uh, of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the gospel, prophecy, whatever it is at the particular time, and the person starts to see this. Have you ever had that experience? It's, a, it's an amazing experience. And here, here's Paul. He's giving this testimony. He's, he's speaking. He's showing the truth. And here's some light bulbs starting to go off. And Agrippa, he's in deep thought, contemplating what Paul is saying. And he forgets who he is and where he is. He forgets for just a moment that he's a king. And he almost surrenders himself to Christ right then. Almost. And you read about it in Acts 25, 26, 27. Acts 26 and verse 28 says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Almost isn't good enough, is it? From Acts of the Apostles, page 438, says, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice might in justice have warned the fetters that bound the apostle. All were guilty of grievous crimes. These offenders had that day heard the offer of salvation through the name of Christ. One, at least, had been almost persuaded to accept the grace and pardon offered. But Agrippa put aside the proffered mercy, refusing to accept the cross of a crucified Redeemer. Almost. How many times can we put off the mercy offered and refuse to accept the cross of a crucified Redeemer and go about our day as if we'll get another chance? You know, that's the faith of the world, isn't it? It's really presumption, isn't it? That's their faith. 
you know, beloved, we may never get another chance. The devil wants us in such a condition, you see, for he knows that it's an unsaved one. We too often go about our day thinking that no one's watching us. You know, we make choices and nobody sees this. But there is one who's watching. There is one who's keeping an account of our thoughts and our words and our actions. Nothing is a secret with God. You know, I helped a pastor one time in in ministry before I was called. And uh, he he used to say, he used to describe it this way, our darling delicious sins. Our darling delicious sins. You know, the sins that are hidden away we don't think anybody knows about. Well, let me tell you, there are... I've found in my experience, you may think that nobody on this earth knows about it. And that may be the case sometimes, but there are some people on this earth that do know about it. Whether or not somebody on this earth knows about it or not, God knows. You know, we can think that our tracks are covered and all our delicious secret sins will never be found out, but this is self's greatest deception. Jesus said, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Matthew 10.26 The Bible says, Behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's part of that reaping and sowing principle. That's Numbers 32 and verse 23. We cannot hide anything from God. Psalms 90 and verse 8 says, Thou hast set our iniquities before Thee, our secret sins in the light of Thy countenance. And I know what I speak of. I'm not speaking down to anyone. I'm speaking for myself. Professing one thing and living another. You know, convincing ourselves that no one will be the wiser for it. Secret sins do not bring relief to our unhappiness. They don't. They only add more and more guilt to the misery of one's life. And they drag you further away, really, from true joy. I've learned that halfway with God is no way and most miserable. What changed as I've contemplated this, what changed my secret life of misery, my profession of Christianity, to an actual living Christianity? I came to a breaking point. I poured out everything to Christ. Everything. He knows it anyway. That's why we have a closet to go to. So no one else can hear. And I poured it out. I found that God had not forsaken me as guilty and sometimes evil as I had been. God had not given up on me. And I realized that God doesn't give up on us. That's something to be thankful for, isn't it?
I finally realized, even though professing to be a Christian, going through all the, you know, the duties, you know, helping out when needed, going to church each Sabbath, paying tithes and offerings. Beloved, if it's not in your heart, if you don't have a love for Christ in your heart, how much does that avail you? I realized that God loves me and cares for me so much that He gave up all He has to save me from myself. How appreciative are you if someone comes to you knowing your need and would give you everything they have? I mean, we're very thankful to people here that do this for us here, aren't we? Have we really understood the price that was paid for us? See, this comes with beholding Him. Beholding Christ. You know, almost in Christianity today, it almost has become cliche to look to the cross. And that's very sad because of... Because the majority of professing Christians have really never looked at the cross. We like to say it, at least, you know. And I'm not saying don't look to the cross. We need to look to the cross. But there seems to be this whole cliche about it, this whole different meaning. We talk about a personal relationship and exercising faith and experiencing it. It's got to be a personal experience. What helps is the testament of our personal experience to others. When I came to the realization of how much God loves me, that He gave up everything in heaven... And we have wild imaginations, at least I can have wild imagination, imagine what heaven's like. To give all of that up with the actual risk of never living again himself so that I may live, that's powerful. That's a powerful love. Complete unselfishness. When I came to that realization, I gave up my life of secret sins and completely handed it to Jesus. When Jesus says, let me take your burdens, He means it. I'll lift them. I'll remove them. Trust me. I completely submitted to His will. My relief was instantaneous instantaneous God works faster than we can imagine and joy filled my heart friends I experienced the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ in my life I don't want this to come across the wrong way my life really doesn't matter to me do you understand what I mean 
What matters to me is the will of God in my life. That's what matters to me. I often wondered, as I read the accounts, that here are apostles, <laughs> the disciples of God, bound by chains, in prison, in the most uncomfortable and painful of positions, and they're singing praises to God. I used to wonder, how is that even possible? Well, it's only possible if you have that love of God in your heart. That you're dead to self. You care more and love Jesus more than anything at any time, anywhere. And you'll experience it. My choices... Run through His filter. The Holy Spirit. Like Paul, I can honestly say, for I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not boasting, friends. I'm trying to convey a love and forgiveness and tender mercy and compassion that I've experienced. And anyone can experience Is that little, darling, delicious sin so valuable to you that it will cost you eternal life and true joy and happiness? Is having that possession, holding on to it... You know, I told Deb on the way up here, I read an article, just just happened a couple days ago. There was a a, a man in his mid-30s that took his son to a baseball game. And he's in the outfield and they hit a foul ball and and he's leaning on the rail and he hollers to the, the professional athlete... Throw me the ball. He coveted having the ball. My wife thought that was maybe a little extreme, but why else would he holler, throw me the ball? He wanted that ball. The ball was thrown to him. He lost his balance, fell over the rail, and he is now dead in the front of his son. Is that baseball worth someone's soul, someone's life. We give up eternal life for a bowl of porridge so often, don't we? It doesn't have to be that way. It's my goal and prayer that I can lift up Jesus before you, not just today, but always. And I hope that's your prayer and goal, to have Jesus living within You know, when we walk with the Lord, and I've used this expression quite often, the Lord is so gracious and humble and kind to us, we can be on that same road, but be, uh, as I determine, different mile markers. We each are different. We each have, that's why when we're given testimonies today, God answers our prayers in different ways. Even though we may be going through the same types of experiences. Because He knows what's best for us. That's an intimate God. That's a God that knows us and cares deeply for us. And I hope that you can realize what I've realized and experience the love and forgiveness and happiness that I found in the Savior. That you will never want to choose sin again. For you found a friend that loves you deeply and has your best interest at heart. Do I make mistakes? (laughs) Absolutely. 
Absolutely, we all do. But you know something? When you run, and this is just my own experience, that's all I can speak to is my own experience. When you run your choices through God's filter, you will find that they happen less and less. Because by beholding Him, you become changed. And the more you behold Him, the more you become changed into His likeness. And the closer you come to Him. You know, it's hard to deny the love of God for us. And yet we choose to do it all too often. And that's what it comes down to. You know, we do it every time we choose self over the will of God. We do it when we know to do right and we choose wrong. We do it when we esteem our needs above the needs of others. We count our interests more valuable than the interests of the Lord. How often I see people making the same mistakes that I've made. Thinking that no one knows. They're sinning in secret. It's a big secret. That's why the majority of God's professed people will not be in the kingdom. They have darling, delicious, secret sins. I want to tell you that those who are spiritually minded often see the fruits of one's life. Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. It'll come out. And I'll tell you, better for it to come out now in repentance than when it's too late. That's why I'm bringing this to you. I'm appealing to you. It really comes down to trust. Do you trust God or do you trust yourself? Does God really love me and have my best interest at heart? Does He really want to help me? Can He really help me? Well, friends, throughout the Bible we can clearly see that God has the best interest of His people at heart. Over and over again, even when in complete rebellion, God still had their best interest in mind. Even when He allowed His people to be taken captive by heathen nations, it was in their best interest at that time. God uses many means to get our undivided attention and attempt to draw our eyes and heart to Him. If you've read anything in the book of Jeremiah, you can see that God doesn't easily give up on His people. God sent the prophet Jeremiah uh, to give a wake-up call to Israel. One duty of a prophet uh, is to set before the people their true condition in the sight of God. We see this in the case of uh, Isaiah. You see it in, in Elijah. You see it in John the Baptist. Isaiah 58 and verse 1 says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. You know, we, over the Independence holiday, we, we went and we, we listened to uh, a local orchestra. They play uh, a symphony. They play the patriotic songs, you know. And they, in Lafayette, they have a, a well-known person who, who's known worldwide for his trumpet playing. There's a reason God uses trumpets. Use trumpets in the Old Testament because they're the loudest instrument there is. And here Isaiah is saying, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a 
trumpet. <laughs> See? So all can hear and show my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. This is exactly what Jeremiah was doing after declaring to the people their true spiritual condition. You know, God just doesn't come to us and point out our sins. Now, I remember when I was growing up, I had a, a younger brother. He was a year and three days younger than me. And uh, we weren't raised with any religion. I mean, we, my parents were good parents. They taught us right and wrong, good morals. We went to church, I think, until I was like four. <laughs> you know, I believe it or not, I can still remember some of that when I was four. Just having to stand up in front of people. It's really funny. Here I am now. I remember four years old standing up to read a scripture for some Christmas thing and I completely froze. And I, and I wound up being escorted off stage never saying a word. <laughs> uh, who says the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor, right? <laughs> Here I am today. You know? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but the... <laughs> What God does, He doesn't just... Well, what I was going to tell you is my, my little brother and I, we, we fought every day. Every day. And we always tried to get the other person. Oh, He did this. You know, pointing out. Thanks. One of the rules that my dad had... My dad worked nights. My dad worked three jobs when we were growing up to provide for his family. And he would sleep during the day, come home early in the morning and he'd sleep for about five hours get up and go work and, and one of the rules was we were not to ride our bike on the road and we lived kind of in the country we were not to go out and do these things when dad was asleep our bicycle well dad's asleep I'm big enough I went out and got the bike and went down the road I go down the road and I turn around and I'm probably 75 yards from our driveway and who do I see standing in the road I see my little brother with my dad and my little brother's pointing <laughs> And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I remember that to this day. Yeah. And that's what we would do. Point. Point out. He did it. Hate that. He did. Oh. My kids know the, the, the story, and my wife knows the story about me and the cap gun. My mom had bought... My, my bro, little brother and I were always called twins. Everybody you saw, mom would dress us the same. I was traumatized. <laughs> She dressed us the same. Oh, twins? No, I'm a year older than he is. I mean, I remember that. Just Well, Mom would always buy two of everything, see, because we would fight. Well, for some reason, she only bought one cap gun. I think, I don't know if it was, I don't know why. Torture us. Teach us. I don't know. Dad's asleep not to fire that cap gun off. Well, I'm firing it off. But I hear Dad coming. And my brother all the time saying, let me play with it, let me... Okay, here you go. <laughs> Dad comes out and, of course, my little brother got, got uh, disciplined for it, and I didn't. God doesn't work that way. God points out our sins for specific reasons. Not so that we feel bad, not for just for punishment, not just for discipline, but for... Instruction. And that's why Dad disciplined us, was for 
instruction. After declaring to the people their true spiritual condition, a message of instruction and hope is given to them. This is a principle. You see this in the character of God. In order to see our need, we must know we have one. In Jeremiah 6 and verse 8, it says, Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem. Jeremiah comes in. He's given a message. A message of their true condition before God. And then, be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, God says to them. Lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. God is very loving and merciful. And this comes through again and again throughout the Scriptures. In the midst of warnings of terrible punishment, there comes tender appeals from God. You see it. God is infinitely good and patient and unwilling to bring ruin upon His people. The same is true today, friends. It's true today. God is making a call to His people who are asleep and indifferent. He's calling for our undivided attention so He can give us instruction and hope. There's a a reason why we are still here. Isn't there? There's a reason that Jesus has not returned. And God is trying to tell us what that reason is. In verse 10 of Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah said, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Let me tell you something, beloved, very sincerely. If it is uncomfortable for you to study your Bible, you have a spiritual illness. If it is uncomfortable for you to go to the Lord in prayer, you are spiritually ill. There's a problem. You understand what I'm saying? God is to be our delight. And when you have given your heart to Him. You want to be with Him. You want to talk with Him. You know, the devil throws out a lot of uh, distractions. You know, there. Um, <laughs> I used to work for this developer, real estate developer, and he had commercial properties. And sometimes I'd have to go up on the uh, the roof and do some work on... Uh, you know, either roof work or air conditioners or whatever it may be, and there were always always crows up there. Crows like shiny things. They're distracted by them, and they'll go and they'll get them. And I'd find all kinds of things on the roof of these these buildings that these crows brought up, and I just scratched my head like, what? A, where did they get this? You know. And too often, we're like crows. We get distracted by these shiny things in the world. And we need to to keep our eyes upward. We need to keep beholding Him. There will be less distractions. We can be distracted even in doing good things. 
We can be distracted in ministry work. Believe me, I've experienced that. God wants us to be temperate in all things. And let me clarify that. In all good things. He doesn't want us to be temperate in bad things. We're not to be doing bad things. You understand? God's saying here, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. And they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. What is the condition of our hearing today? Are our ears covered? Is the word of the Lord a reproach? Beloved, we've got to be honest with ourselves in answering those questions. God knows the condition of our heart. We need to open our ears to hear what the Lord's saying for it is in our best interest to do so. And just as in Jeremiah's day, there are many today that do not want to hear the truth about their spiritual condition. I run into it quite a lot, uh, sadly. They want to hear smooth things. Is that right? want to hear smooth things, uh, and there are many preachers out there to give them exactly what they want because they like to hear smooth things too. You go on in Jeremiah 6, Verse 13 and 14, he says, For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see, the spiritual leaders, the the prophet and the priest should have been foremost in checking the evil among God's people. But instead, they were the chief offenders in it. The so-called prophets of Jeremiah's day glossed over the sins of the nation and drew flattering pictures of Judah's future. And by their smooth and deceitful Teachings, these faithless leaders lulled the souls of sinners into a fatal ease. They should have warned of impending calamity and the need for repentance, but instead they asserted there was nothing to fear. No, there's nothing to fear. Do you know that even when Jerusalem was being sacked, The leaders of Israel were telling the people that God was going to deliver them. We see the same spirit alive and well among the remnant of God today. There are many ministers in the church that try to calm the influence of the Holy Spirit's conviction upon a person's heart. Is this the kind of message that you want to hear? Or do you want to hear the truth about yourself and the truth about God? I want the truth. When I was learning about Jesus and I, I saw what all was given for my life, that I may have eternal life, that I may have happiness, that I'm, I can be given power not to do the things I was doing, and I gave myself to the Lord... 
I told the Lord in that prayer, I've never forgotten it, I want to know what the truth is. When I was baptized, I told the pastor, if this church ever goes away from the truth, I'm going to follow the truth wherever it leads me. Before he dunked me, I told him that. And he said, that sounds like a good plan. (laughs) You see, the truth as it is in Jesus, is the only thing that can set me free from the trap of sin. Jesus said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In order to have a revived heart, we must be open to the word of God about our personal spiritual condition. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, goes on. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. You know, the metaphor is that of a traveler who, having lost his way, places himself at the juncture of several different roads carefully considering and diligently inquiring, well, which one is the right one? And in Israel's case, the true road was the one in which Judah's godly forefathers had walked. And the person who walks in the path that God directs will find peace and joy and rest. You know, there's a false idea out there about the righteousness of Christ. And we must have a right understanding about our role in the work of salvation. Some believe that we, we have no role to play, really. That any effort on our part is works and not faith. The Bible teaches that obedience is the fruit of faith. So we do have a personal work to do. Philippians 2, Brother Tim read out of this, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do of His good pleasure. Paul's not endorsing the idea of salvation by works here. We are saved by grace through faith. But it's a faith that's exercised. And this grace leads us to good works. Thus, such works are the outworking of the grace that has affected our salvation. Many people are attracted, you see, to the Christian way of life, but they're unwilling to meet the conditions by which the reward of the Christian may be theirs. They come halfway to the Lord. Almost thou persuadest me. If they could gain salvation without any effort on their part, boy, they'd be more than happy to receive all that the Lord might give them. You know, many people follow Jesus around just because they receive free food and such. But they wouldn't give themselves to Him. In fact, Jesus said, You must eat of My body and drink of My blood. 
And where were they then? They left. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Are you going to leave me too? Salvation is not of works, but it must be worked out. Paul was not present to help the Philippian believers personally. You know, they had to care for their own spiritual needs. Salvation is an individual matter. Always has been. No human friend, no pastor, not even an apostle can work it out for another person. I can't save you. You can't save me. We can encourage one another to good works, though, and to be faithful. Ezekiel 14, verse 20 says, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in in it, the land, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Isn't that interesting? By their righteousness. That's the righteousness of Christ. To make God's grace or His character our own, we must act our part. His grace is given to work in us to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our effort. There are some that I run into that say, well, Jesus does it all. I say, well, what do you do? Just sit in a chair? I'm trying to understand. Well, Jesus does it all. Well, Jesus does it all, but He does it all through you. We're to be aroused to cooperate with Him. You see, God has given us the freedom to make our own decisions, hasn't He? If we choose Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in us, writing His laws upon our hearts and our minds and giving us the power to work out our own salvation by making righteous choices. And they become easier and easier and easier. Everybody knows John 3 and verse 16. Sometimes we don't read the verses before that. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him, and that word believeth there, is closer to commit themselves, should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to save us. How does He do this? What must happen to us in order for us to be saved? First, Jesus must be lifted up. And we must look up to Him. We must behold Him. And when He's lifted up and we we behold Him, we will recognize the terrible condition that we're really in. Sin's pretty bad if the Son of God came down and died for it, isn't it? And when Jesus is lifted up and we look up and we behold Him, we see Him as He is and we recognize our need of a Savior. Well, how do we come to that conclusion, Pastor Joel? Well, in Jesus we see how much God loves us. We see that there is an eternal law. And we see that there is a consequence for breaking that law. Don't you think if God's law could be changed, it would have been changed? 
but you can't can you can't you can't change God's law because God's law is God. There's no reason for a righteous, perfect being to change. It's impossible. And we see that Jesus chose to pay the consequence for us. Praise God. And He did it because He loves us. Romans 7, verses 5 to 7. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve a newness of spirit. Don't miss that word newness. Of spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Friends, you're not under the law unless you break the law. Guilt comes from breaking God's law. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. His law is a mirror that we can look into to see our defects, to see our sins. And when we look into that mirror, we know that we have broken God's law. We see those defects. And when we look up at the cross, we behold Jesus, our lawlessness is vividly brought to our attention. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. This is the only definition of sin in the, in the Scriptures. I hear a lot of theories. You know, your sins separate you from your God. Sin is, a, is separating from God. No, your sin separates you from God. Sin is the breaking of the law. And that's breaking of the law by choice. The Scriptures declare that we're not born as lawbreakers, beloved. We're not born under guilt, the guilt of Adam or anyone else. That's a teaching of guilt known as original sin. Convert's Catechism, a Catholic doctrine, says original sin is the sin we inherit from Adam, the father of the human race. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Whoop! There's some truth. Neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. God's a fair God, isn't He? God says that to break the law means we have to first know the law, and second, make a choice to disobey it. Many who sin before knowing the law of God or have the ability and opportunity to know are sinning out of ignorance. The Bible tells us God is so fair about that that He will... He may even wink at that. He'll wink at it. At that disobedience. Because it's done in ignorance. Acts 17.30 In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. 
when it comes to your knowledge or you have the opportunity and ability to know it you're held accountable then all of us are Acts 17.31, very next verse. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Comes a time when God will not wink at it when you have the opportunity. It goes before you into judgment. And if we're to discover our true character, our true spiritual condition, we must look up and behold Jesus. We must behold Him. This is from Christ's Object Lessons, page 159. I'm going to move along here. In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. You know, you hear all these things about, oh, there's many paths to heaven. (laughs) There's only one way you can be saved. Only one way can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. It is ignorance of Him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. When we contemplate His purity and excellence, we shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. You know, I deal a lot with the youth, trying to get the youth to, to uh, see God, to understand God, to understand that He has a purpose for their life and that uh, there are consequences to their actions. And when youth get through, they get into these teenage years and they're trying to discover all these things. You know, what, what is the purpose of my life and, and uh, those things. And they, they may, and in this discovery process, they may make decisions that, that go against what they've been taught. And it is a process. Um... Does Jesus give up on them? No, He doesn't. But there's only one way that they can truly come to understand their condition. They have to behold Christ. And so, the counsel is, what is their experience like with the Lord? Because if you don't have, even even the exercise of that little faith that we're all given, right, Brother Tim? That little measure that each is given becomes very difficult for them to do things for the Lord if they don't have a love for the Lord. Even in the smallest of ways. And that's the same for all of us. That's why I say when we quit beholding Him is when we become vulnerable to disobey, to sin, to fall. I've learned so much from the Lord in in the experience of marriage. And the more I love, as Jesus said, husbands, we're to love our wives. And I found that the more that I do for my wife, the more I love her. And the more it comes back to me. It's like Sharon said, how how do you get a third less and God does more? How does that happen? I don't know how God does that. The more we learn of Christ, the more we love God, the more it comes back to us. I want to encourage you to keep beholding Him.
So what happens? We look in this mirror of God and we see that we're lawbreakers. What must happen for us to change our lawless ways? Well, friends, you know, there, there has to be a supernatural miracle performed. And I can't perform supernatural miracles. No human being can. That's why it's called supernatural. <laughs> In John chapter 3, we read about a man of the Pharisees named, named Nicodemus. And he, he was a ruler of the Jews and he comes to Jesus by night. You see, Nicodemus was still in that valley of decision. He'd seen and heard all these things from Christ, but being a ruler of the Jews, he's still hesitating. He doesn't really want anybody to know he's kind of talking with the Lord. He comes to him and before, this is what gets me before, he even has the opportunity you know, to, to ask questions. Jesus goes right to the point. He knows what's on his mind and in his heart. And Jesus says, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand this. Even being a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee. Pharisees knew the law, supposedly. That was their God, the law. He doesn't understand this. He says, well, how, how can a man be born when he's old? How, how can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We need to pay attention to this. When you're born in the flesh, you're flesh. You're carnal. And that's where you follow. And Jesus said, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, Jesus is telling Nicodemus and telling all of us that we have to die to the flesh and be born of the Spirit. That's supernatural. We must become a new person. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Paul said in Romans 8, 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Carnal is the Greek word sarx. It means the flesh or the animal nature with cravings which incite to sin. What does enmity mean? It's a hatred. Hatred. It's ekthra. That's the Greek word. It means hatred. So the carnal or fleshly mind has a hatred against God, against spiritual things. And that, that really makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, didn't Jesus say, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies? That doesn't come from the mind of Christ, does it? This is why we must be born again, friends. These evils and hatred of God must die. Because Adam and Eve chose to disobey, they lost their hatred for sin. Their offspring were born without a hatred for sin. We are born with this tendency to choose the unrighteous course. 
God said that their offspring must have this enmity supernaturally placed within them. This, this enmity against sin has to be supernaturally placed within us. You can read that in Genesis 3.15. That's part of the promise. Some people attempt to make changes without having this enmity against sin. That's what the Pharisees were. Have you ever heard the term legalist? In the pure definition, that's what a legalist is. They don't really have that supernatural change within that enmity against sin, but they go through the process. They see that there are duties that God requires and that that's what they're going to do. But they don't have a hatred against sin. That's where the secret sins come in, see. The person who's trying to reach heaven by his own works and keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. This is merely a form of godliness, but no power. Christian's life is not a modification, you see, or an improvement of the old life, but a transformation. Born again. So, the old nature hates God and it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why would it want to? It hates God. Our old ways, our hereditary tendencies, our former habits must be given up for grace is not inherited. The new birth consists in having new motives, new tastes, new tendencies. Our scripture reading for today was John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. But as many as received Him, received Christ, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And those who are born into a new life by the Holy Spirit have become partakers of that divine nature. Praise God. And in their habits and their practices and their life, they will give evidence of their relationship to Christ. When we who claim to be Christians keep all our natural defects of character and disposition, how do we differ from those of the world? There is no difference. But with Christ, there is a difference. You know, the world persecutes Christ. If you're a true Christian, is the world going to love you? Not if they see Christ in you. It'll come. It comes in many different ways. The only way that we can be saved from repeating our sins over and over is to partake of the divine nature. It's the only way. The only way we can partake of the divine nature is to look up to Christ, to accept Him as Lord and Savior. Then we get a new heart. We get new desires, new tendencies. We get a hatred for sin. And by faith, we have to act upon His Word. Those exceeding great and precious promises that Peter talks about. You know, there are promises. The last count for me was about 3,100 promises in the Bible. Why are they there? And God has something for us. God's Word does not come back to Him void. 
there, there is power inherent in the promise. It's there for us. We need to exercise our faith, act upon it, and that power is there. It takes trust, takes that relationship, takes beholding Him. The key, if I have to boil it all down as I close here, the key is to stay in love with Jesus. And I don't say stay in love with Jesus as the world and the, uh, the Christian, supposed Christian world talks about love of God. It's to see Jesus for who He is and what He's done and what He's doing for you. Your heart will melt you will fall in love with the Savior. And the key is staying in love with Him. Jesus said to the church in Revelation, He said, you've lost your first love. Their first love was Jesus. Let's not lose our first love. Psalms 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. In order to have that peace which passeth all understanding, we must acknowledge our guilt and not hide anything from Him who can see the heart. We must acknowledge our need of the righteousness of Jesus. We will not renounce sin unless we see its sinfulness. Until we turn away from it in heart, there will be no real change in our life. Like I said, secret sins don't bring happiness. They just push you farther away from true joy. Beloved, we must walk and talk with Jesus every day. I mean, when you love someone, you want to be with them. You want to be with them. If you're having difficulty... Going to the Word each day and studying it. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, recreate in me a clean heart. Recreate in me desires to be with You. He'll answer that prayer every time. Every time. Start out with a five-minute, three-minute, one-minute prayer. I'll guarantee you it will increase. (laughs) Make a list. Pray for others. The list will grow. I had a list one time, and it was almost four pages, typed, of people. Now, I didn't pray for every single person every morning and evening on that prayer list. But you know what happened? I would go over that prayer list every morning. I'd look, and names would pop out. They'd pop out, maybe half a dozen, dozen, depended. And I would pray especially for them. And then I would say, Lord, remember everyone on my list (laughs) it'll grow it'll grow and your love for God will grow your love for Jesus will grow your time spent with Him will increase you gotta start though you gotta keep beholding Him I'll leave you with this faith I live by page 248 says as we continue to behold Him His image becomes engraved on the heart and is revealed in the daily life. 
My dear young friends, ever keep Christ in view. Thus only can you keep the eye single to God's glory. Jesus is your light and life and peace and assurance forever. But you see the principle there? As you continue to behold Him, His image becomes engraved on your heart and is revealed in your life. As a pastor, I pray the Lord for discernment as I attend to the needs of people. And you have discernment by their fruits. You begin to see that for some reason they're not beholding Jesus. You see it because it's not revealed in their daily life. And so that's brought to your mind and you go and you minister to the person. And we're brought together here to encourage one another, to lift up one another, to gain a spiritual blessing on this most holy day. We may see, we, we all have discernment. We see when someone's distressed, don't we? We see when someone has stress. We see when someone's hurting. That's when we can exercise faith and exercise and share the love of Christ. But if you want to share the love of Christ, you've got to have it to begin with. Amen? So my friends, do you want to be free of sin and guilt? Behold Him. Do you want your burdens lifted? Behold Him. Do you want to experience peace and joy and happiness? Behold Him. And He will draw you unto Him. And give yourself to Him. There is such a peace and a love that comes into your heart. No matter what happens, no matter the pain, no matter if it's a kidney stone, Brother Ted, you can sing hymns to Him. <laughs> Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your untiring efforts in our regard and for your undying love for each one of us. We thank you so much that you loved us, that you gave up all heaven. All heaven was poured out in Jesus. And you gave him to come here, to become like one of us, to live a life showing us how we can live, to die for our sins. He was resurrected to to give us hope of victory. And He ministers for us now. And Lord, we pray that You forgive us where we failed to look to, to You, where we failed to behold Jesus. Help us to increase in our uh, commitment and our love for what is right and true. May the Holy Spirit work such a miracle in our hearts and our minds that we will always behold Jesus. And as we go throughout this Holy Sabbath day, may we, Lord, by grace, keep it holy in our thoughts, in our words, and our actions. And Lord, be with those who are in pain and suffering. Remove that pain, Lord, at least, Lord. If not to be healed, remove it for the Sabbath day so we can all rest. We thank you for hearing our prayers. We ask it in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.